We're going to dive right in. We're going to go to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3 is where we'll start. Uh, Mark chapter 3. We've been walking through this series, a series called The Walk. And our hope and prayer throughout this series is to understand what it means to actually know Jesus, what it means to have a real relationship with Him. We've been looking at various uh, experiences of the disciples themselves, people who knew firsthand what it was to literally and physically walk with Jesus. Um, But we're wanting to know their experience so that we can have that same experience today. Um, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is where I want us to go. If you've gotten there, say, I beat you. Okay, never mind. All right, maybe I'm the one. Ah, I beat you. Okay, there we go. Mark chapter 3. And this is actually, uh, you know, one of the descriptions of the, the first apostles when they were called and stuff. We'll get to that in just a moment. But I want us to realize something. That when Jesus calls the disciples to follow, do you remember what he said to them by the Sea of Galilee? He said, follow me and I will what? Yeah, I will make you fishers men. The way that Mark chapter 1 actually puts it, Mark chapter 1 verse 17 says it like this. Then Jesus said to him, or said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And as you let that sink in, just realize that the invitation to follow Jesus comes hand in hand with a promise to become. Okay, the invitation to follow goes hand in hand with the promise to become. To become something that they were not before. Okay, they were fishers, sure, but now they're becoming fishers of men. And we'll talk a little bit more specifically about that phrase, fishers of men, next week. But just in principle... There is an appeal and an assurance that when we follow Jesus, we have the promise that we're going to be made into something else. Do you hear that? Yes or no? That when we follow Jesus, we do not remain static or stagnant. There's a dynamic element of becoming something. And I would submit to you today, it's becoming like the one we're following. Okay, so Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, the disciples knew what it was like to follow Jesus. Did they know what it was like to become like Jesus? I would submit to you, yes. Over time, okay? <laughs> this, is not a, this is not a snap of the fingers process. It's not something that you flip a switch. And we're going to see that specifically today. We're going to look at the experience of John. John was uh, later known as John the Beloved, or maybe you know him as John the Revelator. But do you know what he was known at at the beginning? Yeah, Mark chapter 3, verse 17. Mark chapter 3, verse 17. Okay, so verse 16 is Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. But notice the other disciples that came after. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. Okay, so they were both sons of Zebedee. But then, notice this. To whom he gave the name Boanerges. That is, sons of thunder. Can you guys say it like that? Sons of thunder. Yeah. Okay. Now, Boanerges is actually an Aramaic term. It's a compound term of uh, two Aramaic uh, words. Ben meaning son. Okay. And um, I think the, the actual other, the other word is regesh or regez, which means thunder or tumult. And actually, it's the same word. If you remember the story of Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, he sees these three Hebrew boys who don't bow down to his, his, his image, and he has this strange wrath and fury towards them. It's regesh. It's that same regesh. Okay, so these were sons of, 
serious, violent rage, okay? (laughs) And this is John, who later becomes John the Beloved. What in the world happened? What we're going to do is we're just going to look at three scenes where John's thunder kind of comes through, okay? And then we're going to look at what in the world did Jesus lead him to experience that changed him from a son of thunder to John the Beloved, that made him follow Jesus and actually become something that he was not before. All right, so three scenes. Let's go to the first one. Scene number one is in Mark also, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, turn with me there. I think we're going to start in verse 38. Mark chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and scoot next to someone who does. We're going to go through a lot of scripture today, or maybe there's a Bible under your seat. Um, We want this to be not just what is said, but what is read. So let's let's take a look. Mark chapter 9. And this story comes kind of on the heels of the Mount of Transfiguration. If you're looking at the beginning of Mark chapter 9, you're kind of getting a sense of where they are in the story of Jesus. They're fresh off the Mount of Transfiguration. They're fresh after seeing Jesus in all his glory. By the way, who were the ones on top of the Mount of Transfiguration who saw Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? Who, Who was with Jesus at that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first three, the inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John, they come off the mountain. They're kind of feeling good about themselves. You, you can imagine that these sons of thunder are thinking, man, hey, we're, we're kind of getting near to the glory of God. Uh, they feel privileged to be one of those three, or John feels privileged to be one of the three to see Jesus' glory. And not long afterward, the disciples are having this discussion. My subheading in verse 33, my heading is, who is the greatest? Okay. The disciples are having this conversation about who would be the greatest. And Jesus, in that conversation, he settles the matter. He says, no, 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 no. The cultural values that you use to determine what true greatness is, I'm going to turn that upside down. Okay? Jesus has just had this conversation about what it means to be truly great. And then John pipes up with uh, some sort of offering saying, hey, I did something great for you, Jesus. Okay? (laughs) Let's take a look. Mark chapter 9, verse 38, the Bible says, I'm reading from the New King James. It says, Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Okay? So here here Jesus is talking about greatness, talking about being of service, things like this, and John's saying, Hey, I was of service to your name because they weren't following us. I told him to stop, okay? Verse 39, But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. And verse 40, For he who is not against us is, what does your Bible say there? It's on our side. Yeah, he who is not against us is on our side. Apparently, John thought he was guarding the honor of Jesus, protecting the brand, so to speak. But Jesus has a largeness of heart that is not natural to our narrowness. Sometimes I think we can admit that we have a thirst for inclusion via the exclusion of other people. The reality is we tend to think too small because we're really only thinking of ourselves. And this is something that Jesus is trying to kind of gently pride, saying, no, 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 no. If he's not against us, he's on our side. That's scene number one of uh, this. I don't know. You wouldn't necessarily call that thunder, but um, John was not being kind. 
<laughs> to, to whoever it was. I don't know the tone of voice that he used with this individual, but this was definitely a son of thunder moment where he was narrow-hearted. Okay, let's go to scene number two. Scene two happens in uh, Matthew. Let's go to Matthew, the book right before Mark. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 20. Matthew 20, verse 20. Again, greatness is the the theme of the day. This is something that was apparently on the disciples' mind quite a bit. But this time, his campaign for greatness is not direct with Jesus, it's indirect, okay? His request, John's request for greatness, is not something that he makes himself. He's not piping up this time. Maybe he's learned his lesson. He's asking, asking his mom to make the request for him. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. If you're there, say amen. Okay, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him and with, sorry, came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. That's a pretty bold request, right? Apparently still at this time, not just the disciples, but even the disciples' mom. They have this concept that Jesus is a king of an earthly kingdom. They have this hope that they've been cherishing that Jesus would sit on an earthly throne and appoint those around him in his court. But Jesus answered and said, verse 22, you do not know what you ask. Man, how many times is that true of us? (laughs) You do not even know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? So right now he's probably talking directly to James and John, not to their mom. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said, we are able. Verse 23, so he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup. Be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And we could probably do another study on what is this cup? What is baptism then if it's not jumping in the Jordan River, you know? Uh, But definitely things that Jesus is trying to uh, signify of a larger reality. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it's prepared. Verse 24, this doesn't really sit well with the other ten. When the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Remember what their names were? The sons of thunder. But Jesus called them to himself. Here, Jesus, again, is kind of addressing this thunderous moment. This wasn't necessarily something that John was trying to violently impose, but it was something that created a stir. Okay, it created a stir. And Jesus called them to himself and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus responds again by addressing the heart motive that was going on, that that lay beneath, so to speak, that lay beneath the surface. And that motive was pride. That motive was selfish ambition. And Jesus makes it very, very clear to this son of thunder that no, true greatness is not about position above others, but it's about power to love others. The goal isn't to be first and to exercise power over others, but to be a servant, to give our life 
in service to others. And I believe that this, like even though this wasn't something that, you know, John was um, starting a fight over, I believe this, this gripped John's conscience so much that when he was writing his gospel, you know, decades after the other gospels were written, that when he was writing about this moment, this teaching, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all kind of include this idea, you know, he who is great will be your servant, he who wants to be first will be, you know, last, and things like that. But John wasn't content to just simply state that teaching. He actually wanted to put in a story that no other gospel includes, a story that illustrates that teaching in living color, a story of Jesus in the upper room actually becoming a servant and washing the disciples' feet. No other gospel records that. Why? Because for John, this totally changed his life. He's thinking, well, this is what true greatness is. This is power. It's not power over. It's power under. It's power to love and to serve. and to. Give. This is what true greatness is all about. And so the son of thunder, yeah, he was narrow-hearted, but he was also driven by selfish ambition. Let's go to scene number three. Scene number three is in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. We'll start there. This is probably the most thunderous of the scenes. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We'll start in verse 51. When you're there, say, I found it. All right. Here we go. Luke chapter 9. Now, Luke isn't necessarily written in uh, chronological order. I guess there are chronological historical sequences there, but uh, this is thematic. Luke chapter 9 actually kind of seems to me like it seems like the cluster of all the disciples' foibles, (laughs) all in one. All of their, oh, you know, smack the forehead moments, that kind of thing. Anyways, this is one of them. Verse 51, now it came to pass when the time had come for him, Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go where? To Jerusalem, okay? In other words, all right, this is the agenda, boys. All right, we're, we're setting our sights on Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop us. And on the way, this is what we're going to do. We're going to stop at cities and towns and stuff, letting people know that we're on our way to Jerusalem. Now, if you're a disciple who's cherishing a hope that this Messiah of yours that you're following is going to be stirring up or starting up a kingdom, then this is probably stirring up in their hearts some, some of their earthly ambitions, okay? Now, on the way, it says in verse 52, He sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him. All right, this is the last push again. A last push before arriving in Jerusalem for the last time. Jesus sends messengers before him to towns that he personally, or he wants to personally invite, personally visit, personally minister to. And there is this village of the Samaritans. That they have the opportunity to prepare for Jesus. But verse 53, but they did not, what's the next word? Receive him. just, just, Just put that on a shelf in your mind. They did not receive him. Because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Here's this village of Samaritans that apparently doesn't appreciate the privilege that they have to receive the king. And John a son of thunder? <laughs> Woo! Here he goes. Verse 54. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as who? 
just as Elijah did? Man, this is a flaming suggestion here. I don't know if you remember this, this story of Elijah where he's sitting on top of a hill and there's a, a, there's, there's a Samaritan captain with his soldiers that comes and says, man of God, come down. The king wants to see you. Do you remember what Elijah said? <laughs> if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. <laughs> he and his 50 men. That's a big deal. It happened several times, actually. The third time, the captain says, man of God, please come down. Please, please, pretty please. (laughs) Anyway, so he learns his lesson. He's burned up. Anyway, so here's James and John. They're thinking, bro, we have somebody much greater than the prophet Elijah here. We have someone who's going to be king pretty soon. Let's burn them up. Yowzers. You know, the the kids and I, we've been reading this book, and, uh, you know, it's it's going through the characteristics of love in, in 1 Corinthians 13. And I tell you what, love is, and Debbie's been going through it too, sorry. Love is not rude. <laughs> I love that. Love is not rude. I tell you, the sons of thunder were being rude in response to the rudeness of the Samaritans. But here's Jesus' response, verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of what? What manner of spirit you are of. Again, Jesus' response is putting a finger on John's heart motive. What kind of spirit was he actually cherishing that would run counter to the values and spirit of Jesus? According to verse 56, here's Jesus' heart. This is the the spirit of Jesus. Verse 56, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Didn't come to destroy men's lives. But to save them. And again, I think this made such an impression on John that when he's writing his gospel, he takes a conversation that Jesus has with one man and wants to make that known to all men. He takes this conversation, writes about it in John chapter 3, and after verse 16, which we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, he wanted to make sure to write that, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus didn't come to destroy men's lives. He came to give them abundant life. Another one-liner from the Gospel of John. John didn't, you know, he didn't let these tendencies define him, this this narrow-heartedness, this drive of selfish ambition, this cherishing of a violent spirit, definitely more than rude spirit. John didn't let these tendencies define him. Whenever Jesus presented these to him, I really believe Jesus did this in a loving way. He lovingly brought these things to his attention. And John, in response, brought them under the lordship of Jesus. The disciple who once was characterized by rage, thunder, let's burn these guys up. He eventually becomes the gospel writer who is all about love. He's eventually the one who says, you know what, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who doesn't love doesn't know God. For God is love. That's the same guy. The same guy who said, let's call down fire. He says, let's love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. 
Where in the world did that come from? How did John experience that transformation? How do we experience that kind of transformation? When you look at John's gospel, when you look at his epistles, I believe that you will find clues to see what impacted John's own experience, what led to his own growth and transformation. So, if you will, let's go to some of these powerful passages in the Gospel of John. Go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, how he went from thunder to beloved. John chapter 1, and we'll just look in verse 12. <clears throat> John chapter 1, and verse 12. When you're there, say, I'm there. All right, John 1, verse 12. I'm going to start actually in verse 11. He came, this is speaking of Jesus, he came to his own, and his own did not what? (laughs) Has John been around the block a few times? Yeah. He's seen Samaritan villages not receive him. He's even seen his own not receive him. But then in verse 12, this, this note of hope, this gospel promise But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I tell you what, one of the things that led to John's transformation is that he learned what it was like to not receive Jesus, but he also learned what it was like to receive Jesus to receive him and to believe in his name. Man, character change happens not by what we do, but by what we let Jesus do in us. When we receive him and believe in his name. Did you notice just in these two verses, what happens when we receive and believe Jesus? Did you notice the the, the impactful, life-changing results? First of all, verse 12, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right Some versions say the power to become children of God. When you receive Jesus, you and I have the privilege of having power to live a new identity. We receive power to live out a new identity, not as a son of thunder, but as a son and daughter of God. What? John's defining characteristic was thunder and anger. That's why he was called a son of rage. What are we sons of? What are we daughters of? What are, what are the defining characteristics that have uh, you know, marked our lives or even plagued our lives? Maybe you and I are a son or daughter of fear, of failure. Maybe it's indulgence or shame. Lust or rejection, criticism or depression, addiction or abuse. What are you a son of? What are you a daughter of? I tell you what, when you receive Jesus, you don't have to be a son or daughter of that. You don't have to be a son or daughter of your past, of your habits, of your tendencies, of your inherited sins or cultivated sins. You don't have to be a son or daughter of that anymore. Why? Because when you receive Jesus, you have the right the power, the privilege, the authority, God-given to become a son or daughter of God Almighty. Amen! (laughs) 
That's the gospel promise that John began to experience. He saw what it was like to not receive Jesus, and he made a decision. I am going to receive Jesus and believe in his name. And son or daughter, when we, when we take on this idea or this identity, to be a son or daughter of God is not just about lineage. It's also about likeness. I love that. You know, when... We, <laughs> My dad, we were FaceTiming the other day, and uh, he, he asked me to put, this is really embarrassing, he asked me to put the, the camera up a little bit closer, and he said, you know, with that hairline, you know, <laughs> with that hair, you really could be a Miranda. <laughs> yeah, anyways, when we receive Jesus, we become sons and daughters of God, not just uh, in, in forensic legal terms, we become like God. That is the power that he gives us. We're given power to become like Jesus. We become chips off the old block, so to speak. Not just in physical appearance or hairlines or whatever, but in character. Praise the Lord, in character. Our best self-help efforts or willpower does not cut it. It is his power that grants it. I think that's why, um, you know, talking about receiving Jesus, when we receive Jesus, he gives us this power. I think that's why the other apostle, Peter, he writes this in Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given to us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Whose power? His. Not yours. Not mine. Not you know, whoever, yeah, and not Oprah's, whatever. Anyway, it's, it's his divine power. His divine power provides everything for life and godliness. All our growth, all our change, all our growing up into Jesus is really growth in grace, which is what Peter calls it at the very end of his letter, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In all our desires to grow, in all our resolutions to grow, in all our self-help goals and stuff, really, our hearts need to be fixed on Him and not ourselves. Okay? All, uh, whether, you know, we have this tendency to, to, to try to, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and stuff, but no, 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 this is God's gift. His divine power brings about this Christ-likeness. I want to read this. This comes from Steps to Christ, uh, page 71 and 72. It's the chapter called Growing Up into Christ. Really powerful. It says this, Hence, it is Satan's constant effort to keep the attention diverted from the Savior and thus prevent the union and communion of the soul with Christ. In other words, the enemy knows where your power comes. It doesn't come from yourself. It comes from Jesus. And so if he can disrupt the connection between us and him, if he can, you know, make us focus on the wind and the waves, then we'll most definitely sink. This is Satan's constant effort, which means it needs to be our constant effort to do the very opposite. Amen? To keep our eyes on Jesus alone. This, it goes on. It says, commit the keeping of your soul to God. Trust in him. Talk and think of Jesus. Let self be lost in him. In constantly beholding him, we are changed into the same image. What? You've heard that age-old principle, by beholding, we become changed, right? Uh, maybe you've heard it in the negative, um, good company corrupts good morals, right? Bad, I'm sorry, bad, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> bad company corrupts bad, 
Thank you. Good character. Okay, we'll stop right there. Anyways, <laughs> stick with the notes. <clears throat> the next part of this quotation says this. It was thus, you know, referring to beholding Jesus. It was thus that the early disciples gained their likeness to the dear Savior. How? By beholding Jesus. By beholding Jesus. Satan's constant effort is to keep us, keep our eyes off of him. That means our constant effort, our greatest strength will always be in keeping our eyes on him. All right. This power to become a son or a daughter, if you're still there in John chapter 1, what is the other result of receiving Jesus, of believing in his name? Verse 12, it says, yeah, okay, so it says, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And then verse 13 describes another result. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? Of God. So we're not just given this, this new label. We're actually given a new life in Jesus, a rebirth. We are born again. This is something that John, again, he, he writes throughout his gospel. For John, being born of God, it wasn't just a nice idea. It was an absolute necessity, right? When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, hey, one can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. But then later in 1 John chapter 5, he doesn't describe uh, being born again just as a necessity, but as a means of victory. Notice this, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes, overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. It's when we receive Jesus, when we believe in his name, that we're given this new identity, we're given power to live it, and then we're given a rebirth to overcome. Man. What is it that we're needing to overcome? What in our past, what in our habits, what in our addictions do we need to overcome? I tell you, it's going to come from his divine power, from being born again. Man, rebirth doesn't only grant us entrance into eternal life someday, but it grants us entrance into the victorious life today. And we'll often be confronted. Don't, don't, don't be fooled. We'll often be confronted, like John was, with our own weaknesses. We'll often hold up the mirror and realize that our hearts are not in line with Jesus, that our behaviors and habits are not in line with Jesus. But instead of taking offense at that, and instead of being overcome by that, we can lean into the promise that Jesus is causing us to be born again, that he is making us a son or daughter of God. And I love this metaphor of being reborn. I love this because this also implies that there's a growth process. You know, being born, we're talking about having babies. <laughs> and then, you know, when a baby tries to walk, we don't condemn them or castigate them for falling. We applaud them for trying to walk. Right? This is what the father does when you're a son or daughter, when you've been reborn. You, you can give yourself patience. You can give yourself grace. There's a certain graciousness that comes along with that. All right, so... From thunder to beloved, John learned to receive Jesus. John learned to believe in his name. The other dynamic, I think that was huge for John, was learning to abide. Learning to abide in Jesus. Go with me to the Gospel of John again. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. <clears throat> this is something that, uh, again, for John, this is unique to his Gospel because it made so much impact in his life. John 15, I'll start in verse 4. When you're there, say amen. 
John 15, verse 4. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. You can overcome nothing. You can change nothing without me. John learned to cling to Jesus for dear life, just like a branch does to a vine. Branch has nothing apart from the life source. You and I have nothing apart from Jesus. Really, abiding in Jesus is really, it's, it's the same thing as receiving, it, receiving Jesus, just in the constant and continuous. Abide, it implies remaining, staying put, dwelling. In fact, it's used uh, 118 times throughout the New Testament, over 60 of them in the Gospel of John alone. 24 in 1 John. <laughs> Okay, so, so here, I'm sorry, no, over 40 of them in the Gospel of John and 24 uh, in 1 John. For John, this, this was life to abide, to stay put. It was dear life for him as the way to yielding the fruit that Jesus looks for. The fruit of what? The fruit of a Christ-like character. The fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness. This is something that the, son, the sons of thunder learned as they learned to abide in Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 13, I love this. Uh, the, you know, the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching in the name of Jesus. And uh, they were doing so much to the chagrin of some of the religious leaders at the time who were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says this, Now when they, those religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. That they had learned to stay in his presence. That they had not just learned to stay in his presence while he was physically there, but they were continuing to be with Jesus. I love how the the Living Bible puts it. They were amazed and realized what being with Jesus had done for them. What does being with Jesus do for you? What does being with Jesus do for me? Well, one, it leads me to bear fruit of a Christ-like character. Fruit that would produce life-giving impact on the world. This is something that James and John experienced, and Peter, and all the disciples. But I would say especially these sons of thunder. We may not have the privilege of physically walking with Jesus like John and the disciples did. But it is our privilege still to remain in Jesus. To abide with Him. And how do we abide? How do we cling like a branch to a vine? It, it really, it's as simple as holding communion with him. Engaging constant, moment by moment, I would say, conversation with Jesus. The opening of the heart to God is to a friend. Notice again, that same chapter in Steps to Christ. Our growth in grace, our joy, our usefulness, all depend upon our union with Christ. It is by communion with him, daily, hourly, by abiding in him, that we are to grow in grace. That's it. 
by keeping communion with Jesus. I mean, do we have that as a daily habit? If we don't, let's make it, right? Do we have that as an hourly habit? If we don't, by God's grace, let's enjoy that. As we, as we hold personal communion with Christ through guarded times of prayer and study, like Daniel had three times a day, even when the expectation and the law of the land said no, it, when we lift up our hearts in praise or petition throughout the day, like Nehemiah, he didn't need a window to go to. He didn't need you know, a, a specific time. He just needed a situation to say, you know, I, I can't handle this. God, you've got to do it. This is how we hold communion with him, whether it's at set times or throughout the day, set or spontaneous times. This is the need and privilege of God's people today. You know, when John is, is receiving the, the visions of Revelation and all these things, he's hearing the messages to the churches of Revelation. He sees, he sees the church at the end of time. You know what he sees? He sees a church that has Jesus on the outside. You, you've read the message to the church of Laodicea before, maybe? You know, in Revelation chapter 3. Let's, let's go there, and that'll be our closer. Revelation chapter 3, again, written by John the Beloved, the ex-son of thunder. <laughs> Right, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and as he's looking in verse 20, he sees what this lukewarm church is like. A representation of God's people at the very end of time. And he hears the message in verse 20, chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In other words, this church has Jesus on the outside. The tendency of ours is to get so busy and to get so wrapped up, even to get so content and complacent that we feel we have all we need when all the while Jesus is standing outside. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And then verse 21, to him who overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. If we have an ear, got to hear this. <laughs> Do you hear Jesus today just knocking on your heart door? Because he's there. He's knocking on our, all of our heart's doors with an invitation. Will we receive him today? And will we abide in him today? If you hear him, then yes, let this be a day of salvation. Receive him today and abide in him every day. Receive his power to become no longer a son of your past, a daughter of your habits, a daughter of your defects, a son of your whatever, you know, but a son or daughter of God. Receive that new life. Receive that rebirth. And abide in him through constant communion. Abide in him through constant dependence. And watch how he grows the fruit of his character in your life and mine. How many of you today want to say, yeah, I want to be a son or daughter of God? Yeah, amen. Why not, right? Why not? John gives us clear steps how. Receive him, believe in his name, and keep abiding in him. So I'm going to invite our song team to join me. We're going to sing this song. And let it be, let it be just a, con a confession of faith today that yes, I want to receive Jesus and abide in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is our confession. <laughs> Not because we uh, are pushing our way into the circle of heaven's family, 
but because we have the right, authority, and privilege through the name of Jesus to be called a son and daughter of God. Today, we choose right now just to behold your grace, to behold what manner of love the Father would lavish upon us, that we should be called children of God. Lord, I don't know what kind of mental scripts we have taught ourselves over the years and decades and even over the generations. But Lord, we give you permission by the power of the gospel to rewrite our hard drive today. That our identity would not be bound to the past. That our identity would not be bound to our weakness, but bound to your strength. Thank you for the name of Jesus that we can receive and believe today. And Lord, I pray that on the daily, on the momentary, moment, you know, moment by moment, that we would experience this receiving on a constant level, this remaining in Jesus. So we give you our hearts. We also give you our homes. Please let this gospel message become our testimony and experience. Take us from thunder to beloved. In Jesus' name we pray. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen.